6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapters 4 and 5. This should put to sleep this whole nonsense that Peter somehow was the first bishop and the first pope and all that business. That's a myth that's been promoted by certain groups. Notice something else, by the way, if you study your words carefully, elders are never spoken of in the singular. This may come as a shock to many. Elders are always in the plural. There was never in mind to have only one elder. The idea of the fellowships was to have a group of elders that ran the fellowship, and they shared those responsibilities. Now, we've adopted a style, and there may be some practical reasons for doing that, that we have a senior pastor and some junior pastors. Okay. But the real model in the early church was a group of elders that shepherded the flock. There wasn't a hierarchy in the traditional sense. Jesus set up his organization charge when he washed their feet. That, told, he, he, that he, the Lord himself, took the most menial task to make a point. Well, let's continue. This, uh, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. You know, it's interesting. Peter was in a unique position because he was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. He was at the foot of the cross. He saw what was going on. Everybody else had it by testimony. But he also says something else here. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What's he talking about there? He's talking about an event that he's going to expand in his next epistle. The first epistle really deals largely with the issues that emerge from Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi. This is the rock on which I'll build my church. And, and the, the, the pun that Jesus drew between the rock and Petros, Petra. But the second letter of Peter is going to deal with the transfiguration. And Peter saw that glory. In his second epistle, Peter identifies this as taking place on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when he actually saw the glory of Christ. And that's going to be very important to understand some points he's going to make in his next letter, in the second letter. Let's continue here. He continues with advice, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Feed the flock. Doesn't say fleece the flock. Feed the flock. Okay? This is the command that Jesus gave Peter when he reinstated his discipleship. You remember? When at the resurrection morning, the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter had lost his discipleship that night when he denied, his, denied the Lord. Up in Galilee, at that breakfast, early morning, Jesus reinstates him and asks him three times, do you love me? Why three times? Because he had denied him three times. 
He asked him that three times. And his response to Peter's response was, feed my sheep. Same imperative that Jesus gave Peter, Peter's passing on to these other elders and those which are among you. Taking oversight thereof. Now this is related to the participle serving as overseers. This is a, a participle on episcopontus. It's, a, it's again, this episcopal, episcopal, uh, which is a noun, it's, it's an overseer term used five times all through Paul's letters too. These exhortations reflect Ezekiel 34, where false shepherds there are contrasted with the true shepherd. Ezekiel 34, first 16 verses, put it in your notes, you can review it on your own. Let's keep going here. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Remember John 13, the example of washing the feet. That was Jesus describing how your church org chart should look. By the way, if Peter was ever a pope, he never knew that. <laughs> I think we've hit that one. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now the word chief shepherd, Peter calls him chief shepherd here. In Psalm 22, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, the great shepherd watches over the sheep. And in Psalm 24, the chief shepherd is coming again. Psalm 22, 23, 24 are called the shepherd psalms. He gives his life in 22, he watches over his sheep in 23, and he comes for them in Psalm 24. Fascinating structure. It's astonishing to discover the amount of prophecy and, and organization that we learn from the psalms. Very, very fruitful. The crown of glory. This is one of five specifically identified crowns that are destined to be cast upon the glassy sea by the 24 elders. A crown of glory is one. What are these? A crown of life for those who have suffered for his sake in the epistle of James and also Revelation chapter 2. A crown of righteousness is mentioned in Paul's final letter to his protege Timothy for those who loved his appearing. Do you know one of the crowns is for those who simply love his appearing? There are people who call themselves Christians who have no passion or concern or apprehension that Christ is coming back soon. That should be the joy of every day, that today it might be today. There's another crown incorruptible, 1 Corinthians 9, for those who press on steadfastly. People who don't press on, still saved, but they may forfeit that crown. There's a specific award, apparently. Crown of rejoicing for those who win souls, 1 Thessalonians 2. And then the one mentioned here, crown of glory for those who feed the flock. Are there just five crowns? I don't think so. There happens to be five specific ones identified in the New Testament. There might be 27. I have no idea. Who knows? They all have the same destiny because they're the crowns. These are Stephanos. These aren't diadems like ruling. These are Stephanos. They're, they're crowns of victory, if you will, and like uh, athletic achievement. And they're going to be cast on the... the what we'll do with those is cast them on the glassy sea in honor of our king. Let's continue here, verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Will the most humble person here please raise their hand? I'm being facetious, of course. I can't resist that. Pride is a barrier to all spiritual progress. 
And wherever there's contention, there's pride. That's one reason I don't participate in debates. There may be a perfectly valid use for debates. I'm not quarreling with that. But I don't participate. Will you, de will you debate this doctrinal issue? No, I won't. I'll be glad to deal with it. If you have some serious questions, I'll tell you why I hold the view I do. Am I going to debate? No. Because I think where there's contention, there's pride. And so I, I pass. I'll leave that to others. We are to be each other's fiduciary. Now that's a term that we really need to understand. Not just from the dictionary, but from legal practice. What is a There's two relationships in business. An arm's length relationship, that's the normal one. And between customer and vendor and what have you. And normally with an employee and employer. You owe him 60 minutes for every hour paid, fine. That's it. If you're a fiduciary, it's a different relationship. That's the relationship with a doctor and a patient or an attorney and his client. That's the relationship where you put the other person's interests ahead of your own and it's a 24-hour-a-day deal. Now, if you're a manager of a company or a director, you are, no, you are then required by the law to be a fiduciary of the shareholder's interest of that company. You're, you're required to protect their trade secrets and their customer list and all that because you're a fiduciary. And the courts are very diligent about that. If you're an employee of a company, you only have, you owe him an hour for work for each hour paid, unless you're a Christian. Because from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, you'll discover that Jesus expects us to be the fiduciary of our employer. It speaks of masters and slaves. That vocabulary there is the vocabulary of the Roman Empire. But our economy isn't master-slave. It's employer-employee. Same relationship obtains. If you're a Christian employee, you owe your employer more than a regular employee does. You need to understand fiduciary. Check your expositional commentary in Ephesians in chapter 6 to explore that if, you're, if you want to review that. Continuing here. Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You don't look for exaltation from other people. You look for exaltation from your boss, the Lord, the ruler of the universe. He'll look out for you and he'll see that you get, you'll, he'll exalt you in due time. It's his job, not yours. You want unquestioning submission to his will. And if you want to understand what that really means, just read the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and other passages. God's heart is always toward you. He is more concerned about you than you are. He is more informed about you than you are. Let me ask a question. How many, of you, how many hairs on your head? Anyone know? I know some of you know. In my case, I have to revise the inventory every time I take a shower. I can see that I've lost a few. How many hairs on my head? I don't know. God knows the number of hairs on my head. I'm not suggesting that's particularly relevant except to demonstrate, to exemplify. He knows more about us than we do. He has more caring about us than we do. He loves you more than you have any capacity to imagine. We need to understand that. There was a day when I was in a circumstance where I was really terrified. There's one time in my life I was really frightened, really terrified. 
I picked up the phone and called my pastor, who at the time was Chuck Smith. I says, Chuck, what do you do when you're really frightened? Now, he knew me well enough just to get right to it. He says, you focus on the love of God. I've never forgotten that. No matter what you're facing, no matter how terrified you might be for whatever reason, all you need to do is focus on the fact that God loves you. He knows more about you than you do yourself. He knows more about your situation than you do yourself. And he loves you enough that be, he is in control. There was a time that I was driving down the mountain every day and I was suicidal. There's a $5 million key man insurance policy on me and every oncoming car was an opportunity where I could just end it and solve all my family's problems, put an end to all that was going on at that time. I, want, I don't ever want to forget that feeling. It sounds morbid to talk about it, but as I was going, every time there was a car down that mountain road, which I had to do every day, oncoming, every oncoming car was an opportunity. But there was a song on the radio. I will be with you, for that's who I am. I'll never forget that voice. And I realized, no matter how despondent I had become, God is either in control or he isn't. And I had to cling to that. And of course I did, obviously. But I never want to forget what I was going through in those days. Because from that day on, I really was his. I had the opportunity to end it, to take charge and put an end to it. And it was an environment that was an attractive option, it would seem, to me at the moment. You see, I became dead to the world at that point and living for him. Because he, he either is in control or he's not. And he, he obviously clearly is in control. And uh, sounds grim to talk about it, but in candor with you, I don't ever want to forget what that was like. I want to remember that moment. Because he loves me more than I have any capacity to imagine. He is in control. And once he really took charge of my life, everything's different. How many hairs are in your head? He knows. Peter goes on and says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the word sober here, by the way, is a different word than we encountered in, uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. The word nepho, it's a different Greek word. Here it means to be watchful, to be circumspect. A little different concept here. The translation isn't as uh, perceptive as it might have been. Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he devour. Satan is real. He's not omnipresent. He can't be every one time, but he is powerful. He is real. He is bitter. He is malignant. He is very resourceful. However, the scripture tells us that if you refuse him his place, he flees. Resist him and he will flee from you. It's interesting to me that Peter chooses to portray him as a roaring lion. I wonder if that's a veiled reference to the fact that the lions of Nero were making their appearance in the physical arena. Just a thought. I don't know if that's you. Move on here. 
Peter said, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You are not alone. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto the, his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you complete or perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. After a while. See, we grow by suffering. We grow by suffering. That's how we become, become complete. That's part of his training program. No pain, no gain, as we would say in athletics. Your present afflictions may be preparation for ministering to others in very specific terms. So he continues, he wraps it up here. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then there's a postscript to his letter here. By Silvanus, that's the scribe, that's the secretary he's using here. A faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The true grace. That's the theme of this whole epistle, the true grace, wherein we can stand in the hour of trial. That's Peter's burden here, all the way through. Now following this are personal, are probably personal annotations by Peter himself. As Paul, see, and up till now, Sylvanus acted as secretary, dic writing what Peter was dictating. But at this point, Peter himself may be adding his own actual comments here. Paul did that too in his epistles. So Sylvanus was his amanuensis, or secretary, if you will. It may have been the same as Paul Silas on his second missionary journey. It could be the same guy. These are common names. Very common name. Sylvanus or Silas as a, are, are, may, may be variation of the same, same character. Sylvanus may have personally delivered the letter to the churches along the predetermined route that was suggested in the first verse of the, chapter 1 of this, of this epistle. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, that was a province of Europe, of, uh, a province of Rome, and Bithynia. Then it's, there's this interesting little addition here. The church that is in Babylon elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Now, some people imagine that the word Babylon here is a code name for Rome. I regard that as nonsense. Peter didn't indulge, he had no need to indulge in those things. This is, this, that, that, that suggestion is uh, 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 probably from the Nestorian church held from the beginning at Babylon on the Euphrates. Some maintain that it was a code word for pagan Rome. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Why don't I believe that? Very simply, Babylon was a major Jewish center. Peter is writing to Jewish believers. Babylon is the place where the Babylonian Talmud was uh, compiled. There are two Talmuds in the Jewish community, what's called the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. These are third through the fifth century kind of documents. It's interesting, the Jerusalem Talmud wasn't written in Jerusalem, it was written in Tiberias. But between those two, among the experts, the Babylonian Talmud is considered the more senior or the more accurate, simply because the academy in Babylon lasted a couple of centuries longer than the one in Tiberias. They're both between roughly the 3rd and 5th century. So the point is, within Judaism, the Babylonian Talmud is a primary document. There is a major center in, in uh, Babylon. And I believe Peter is, is addressing here the church of believers that are at Babylon, elected together with you, with his readers. 
See, they salute you. He's passing on to his readers that the church at Babylon is saluting you. And so doth Marcus, my son. He's not his natural son. He's his son in the faith. You're talking about John Mark, who is the one that penned Peter, uh, his, Peter's gospel that we know as the gospel according to Mark. But Mark is acting as an amanuensis for Peter. When you read the uh, gospel of Mark, you really see things from Peter's perspective. So, for what that's worth, okay? Elected together. Election, the sovereign act of God in grace whereby certain persons are chosen from among mankind for himself. And that's what he's alluding to here at Babylon, interestingly. Whereby certain elect persons are chosen for distinctive service. Just a little review from our first chapter, both Old and New Testament, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Elect, election, choose, and chosen are the same words. Both divine or human choices, those verbs are used both in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew and the Greek. God has foreknowledge from which he makes his election, which generates the predestination. Foreknowledge determines election, of course. Predestination brings to pass the election. And election looks back to foreknowledge. Predestination looks forward to destiny. Foreknowledge, election, predestination, destiny. The apparent paradox of fate versus free will or predestination versus free choice. That's been a classic paradox. It's only a paradox when viewed from within the time domain. Remember the bridges of Königsberg. We went through all of that earlier in, uh, in our discussions. Divine election. Corporate election. Example of that is Israel is selected. The church is selected. Ephesians 1.4. He, he, he picked you before the foundation of the world. Elected before, in the beginning. Individual election. According to the foreknowledge of God as Peter uh, springboarded this whole discussion in this first chapter. It's holy of grace, not of merit. God chose you for his own reasons, not because you deserve it. So, totally of grace. Some that he elects are chosen in a special role for himself or for distinctive service. That's all God's election. He's the quarterback. He writes the rules. Okay, and so Marcus, my son, that's probably John Mark, apparently accompanied Peter in the later years and wrote his gospel in collaboration with Peter. Earlier, he had accompanied Paul, by the way, but he discredited himself when he and got this big brouhaha between Paul and Barnabas because he appeared to be, lacked the courage to get up in Galatia. He ran home instead, and Paul was upset about that. And Bar so Barnabas, and, and so they, they split up. Barnabas and Mark, go one way, Paul and Silas then continue. He later, Mark later, gets reaccredited in Paul's good graces because he's so declared in Paul's final letter to Timothy, chapter 4. So Mark is this young... Many scholars suspect that he might have been that young man that fled naked in Gethsemane. He was apparently from a very wealthy family, perhaps a little spoiled. And when things got rough going up into Galatia, he split. Paul felt that was weak. But he later distinguished himself and and they, they, make, they make amends. So Peter wraps it up says, greet, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. A kiss of charity. I have to include a little proverb you might get a kick out of. A kiss to a young girl is hope. To a married woman is faith. But to an old maid is charity. <laughs> so I'll leave that with you as just a little frivolity. In Christ Jesus, are you in the flesh of Adam today or are you in Christ? 
That's a question you need to ask yourself every morning as you get up. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Well, for your next session, once you understand Peter's two letters were based upon two great unforgettable events in his life. The confession at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 is the preoccupation of his first epistle. The transfiguration in Matthew 17, the next chapter, is the preoccupation that will occur, the, the brief little letter of three chapters called Second Peter. So I want you to read Matthew 17 to get that experience fresh in your mind, and then just read the second epistle. It's only three chapters. We'll take one at a time as we go through the remainder of our studies here, but you might just read the epistle through to get a flavor of it and see some of the issues that surface. It is a second coming epistle. There's a lot there that you're going to be uh, anxious to apprehend. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for his candor, his emotionalism, his commitment, his, his boldness. We just, he charms us and we look forward to meeting him personally. And we thank you for his letter, its candor, and its counsel. Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to apply these precious verses to our own lives in terms of their timeliness in the very challenges that we face and are going to be facing. So we just thank you for that, Father. And we do pray that through your word, we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King, and that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you're bringing before us as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, our kinsman Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.